Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nesh Nikolic, and today's topic is psychedelics and their clinical applications. My guest is Amanda Felding, and her CV is too great for me to go through, but just a, as a small introduction, um, she is the director and founder of the Beckley Foundation, published over 40 books, reports on the topic. Um, she has co-authored over 50 scientific, scientific articles published in peer-reviewed journals um, and has worked with many uh, other researchers uh, across the world um, looking at the effects of psychoactive su- substances on brain function, their subjective experiences, clinical symptoms, um, with a focus on cannabis, psychedelics, which are the LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, DMT, uh, 5-MeO, DMT and uh, MDMA. Um, so she's pioneered research uh, in some of these, uh, looking at brain imaging and the like and uh, cerebral flow of, of, of blood. Um, very, very fascinating. Really excited to be providing you with this uh, particular episode because it's exciting for me to talk about and I'm looking forward to where this space might evolve. Quickly before we start and, and begin, just want to let those clinicians out there who are interested in potentially coming on board uh, strategic psychology uh, as, a, as a clinician. At the moment, we've got three new pathways uh, with regards to uh, attracting new staff. It's something that we're doing right now. We're growing our practices. We've got four new practices that we're looking to build here in the ACT. Uh, so if you're interested, come and speak to us. Those three professional pathways are join us as an employee, join us as a contractor, or consider becoming a partner and running one of those run of those practices. If you're interested, Come and speak to speak to me. Um, go to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and get in touch there. Let's get stuck into the podcast. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Amanda Felding. Amanda, a big thank you for coming on to the show. I've been so excited to have you on board being an expert and someone who's really been involved in the world of psychedelics and 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 the clinical use for for some time so please um you know welcome to the show looking forward to discussing everything everything related right well it's been a very exciting journey and actually i've enjoyed it the whole way and now funny enough it's suddenly all opening up and what one thought would happen when i came across this whole science 
1965, 66. One thought it would be there in five years. Everyone would understand and be so excited. And it didn't happen that way. So the very slow, plodding way we've been kind of struggling up the hill. And now suddenly we've got there more and things can begin to happen more quickly, which is exciting. And we've done a little tiny bit of science which shows um, great possibilities. And now one's got to the next stage where one can start to begin to open the doors so the people in need can get access. So, you know, it, it's moving slowly, but it's moving forward. And that's wonderful. It's very exciting. I'm not sure whether this is history repeating itself, but recently I've read some of the work of uh, Michael Pollan, um, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, and I've then gone on to read some clinical trials that, that, that have occurred both around uh, the world and, and even here in Australia. And it's just exciting. It, it really uh, looks like it's, a, a, you know, I suppose a, a new frontier that, that can be explored in a scientific way uh, that yeah. takes away all the sort of hocus-pocus scary or, or you know, I suppose, uh, stigma attached with drugs. Yeah, Absolutely. A very clear um, example of how the mode has changed to me was a month ago or so. There was a kind of English, Middle England, you know, selling hoovers and makeup magazine. And there in the middle was, what well, I can't remember what it was called, but the wonders of microdosing LSD and a very serious article um, written about its kind of what benefits can be. And it's so different from, you know, back in the 60s when there was the whole war on drugs directed at LSD and psychedelics. So it's wonderful. Mm. What do you think it is that makes us so, you know, afraid or, or, or scared? You know, even as clinicians, you know, I think there's still yeah. you know, a yeah. timid approach toward, um, you know, what, what psychedelics can, can provide. I think it's been a very, very strong conditioning. Um, you know, uh, at that point, whenever it was the 50s, prohibition of alcohol had just stopped. And there was a group of people loving prohibition and the power that that brings and all of that. And um, Vietnam was a threat that the American youth wouldn't want to fight in Vietnam. They'd prefer to go to the park and have fun with their girlfriends, you know, who can blame them. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and so there was a kind of joint paranoia and uh, invested interest to blow it up out of all proportion. So the war come in behind it. Um, Latin America, all the countries which grew or moved or anything to do with drugs. America had the right to go in and invade and control and everything. It, it was a lot, a lot of politics behind the whole build-up. And so there was a whole generation growing up, seeing that the, uh, that had but, um, the brain on drugs is like a brain, an egg in a frying pan. A, a lot of Americans grew up with that image, I think. And that was the general teaching on how people jumped off buildings, actually, the person who said to fly off a building was thrown out by the CIA. Do you know, it was all kind of interpreted in a way to maximise fear. 
And it was only repeating what had happened before in the Inquisition. I mean, it's something which always happens, those on the edge at the front are in danger of being um, uh, made particularly taboo and um, punished for what they say. One of the things... Yes, sorry. Sorry, one of the things that stood out for me in reading Michael Pollan's book was, uh, I think he did a lovely, lovely job of uh, balancing that, that, that space of some of the dangers if people are using... Uh, you know, psychedelics, for example, without any experience or without any knowledge, you know, so it's very, very different for someone to be using it as a recreational um, uh, drug versus a tool of uh, personal discovery or, you know, even in a clinical setting of, uh, you know, trying to, you know, in, in, in some way set up an environment where one can step in toward and lean into fears and, and, and find meaning and, you know, uh, liberate themselves from those limiting beliefs and, and fears that they've held. Yeah. They're two very different worlds. Yes, yeah. one can use too much and maybe throw themselves off a building, for example, uh, if it's not um, looked after well and, and, and someone's inexperienced and it's not a sort of reasonable setting and it can be profoundly therapeutically valuable you know, in the same yeah. breath. Absolutely. Absolutely. And obviously the jumping off a building is vastly exaggerated. Yes, you yes, know? yes. I think, yes. no, I've never actually heard of anyone who's jumped off a building. But um, it's absolutely so. It can be both ways. And um, I was always very interested in the changes underlying uh, the uh, the changes in consciousness, the physiological and neurological changes. Because in 1966, I met a scientist who I had enormous respect for, who gave a physiological explanation, hypothesis, of what are the changes underlying when you get high, like in a mystical experience or through a psychedelic, what, what are the underlying factors? And we were very looking at interested in looking at the changes in cerebral circulation as a, as a kind of underlying, and then you've got all the kind of, um, all the other changes on top of that, but as an underlying change, like an irrigating a field. And we recently, 10 years ago, or whatever it was, did a, 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 some, the first brain imaging studies on um, psilocybin and on LSD, and they're rather fascinating to see the underlying um, changes in the brain. Um, this is one. This is the placebo, a normal person's brain, and we're, we're focusing on the visual area, which is down there. And then that's the same selection of brains. Oopsie, sorry. And for those who are only listening to this recording, what Amanda is showing is uh, uh, images of a placebo group who uh, were, were taking a placebo and only a minor part of one's brain was lighting up uh, towards the rear, probably the occipital lobes predominantly, that area. Uh, and under um, an LSD condition, the brain 
being highlighted uh, virtually across the entire um, uh, area. So quite a vast, quite a vast difference in, in um, what, what, what the community is showing. Yeah, absolutely. And this shows the same thing, but with the connectivity of electrical um, connections. That's the placebo, and that's actually psilocybin. And that's from Berkeley but, Imperial Research uh, Program in yeah, 2015. Yeah, and um, the, the thing is that in the psychedelic change, which needn't be a psychedelic, it can be a natural endogenous change, like people have a mystical experience in that change of consciousness. Um, the ego mechanism, the default mode network, the control system has been turned off. It has less blood directed to it. It, it. it reduces its repression. And so then the whole brain is kind of communicating with itself without the control of the boss. And it's a much more mm. um, flexible um, um, neuroplastic state. So you're much more likely to be able to put in a, a new and better setting, kind of get rid of the old maladaptive one of being depressive or being an alcoholic and kind of settle into a, a better one. And, and that's really, as you know, much better than me, that's what therapy is all about, isn't it? It's trying to help the person get to that place and then lead it, them to it. In, in, in some sense, that's a therapist's dream, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. you know, to have a client walk in and uh, they can leave their ego in the waiting room and, uh, we can, and we can speak with them, you know, in a, uh, a more, um, uh, if, I'm not sure what even language to use, but, you know, maybe more real or authentic, one that's not limited by beliefs and worries and fears, but rather one that's in touch with, with their, you know, human desires and, 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 and love and, um, you know, connectedness. Uh, that's, that's in some sense um, a, a wonderful opportunity to do amazing work because we know that in therapy, even in those split moments when we can put the ego aside or be vulnerable they are transformational in therapy i can't imagine what it's like to have yeah uh, potentially an an, an entire hour with a client to be able to do that that level of work i can just see the the real potential profound change profound change and then if when you have x hours before to kind of get the client in the right kind of mood, maybe help them towards the mood where they're more open. And that I think is what is so amazing about psychedelics and indeed the natural endogenous mystical experience or meditation and all the other ways, sport, all the other ways you can get high like that, um, is that you leave the ego behind and you're more floating there on the clouds of your perceptions. And maybe you put together kind of fresher associations, new new associations for you. And so it's kind of more an evolving state of awareness. And that obviously is very good for change, isn't it? Very good for um, falling into a new pattern. And actually it's absolutely criminal 
that people, and when I say people, it's more or less everyone who's got something they want to heal, treat, make it better. Um, but some more seriously than others, obviously, need treatment. That it's not available, that people can't go to a clinic. And that's what we have to make happen now, kind of thing, together with all the other things that have to happen, like more research and everything. But it would be lovely if people could sometimes are people, participants in the research, bring one up and see if they can enter research. But I mean, research is a tiny number of people. And um, they should just be able to go to a clinic. Um, one should have um, psychedelic assisted therapy on the national health in England. You know, it, 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 it's quicker, more efficient, we're showing and other forms of therapy, I think we'll find, actually. Amanda, could you speak a little bit about how important the setup is, you know, before someone goes out and takes psilocybin? My, my understanding is uh, there's, in actual fact, a significant amount of work that goes into getting someone uh, prepared um, uh, because it's not simply just take this and then you know everything's transformed there, there's a lead up there's there's expectation setting there's understanding what's going to occur and how one is to act while they are uh, in that space in terms of being open can you talk us a little bit about through that because I I think that sometimes the taboo is is a lack of understanding um, and that it's just like oh you just take drugs and then it's supposed to be transformational and, and that's not what we're talking talking yeah, about here yeah. is it no it definitely takes more discipline in my opinion to take drugs these drugs than not to take them it's much easier not taking them but to take them you need to kind of prepare and and if you're trying to solve a particular problem obviously is anything deep and important you have to put in time and energy and thought into trying to set it up so it's in the right position to make the best thing happen. And that obviously is what a, a good therapist helps a person do kind of thing. And the, the compound, the, um, and most of these compounds are natural compounds and humans have used them for ever since humans were humans, basically. Um, and I think are very much part of the human evolution, development of language and all the things, religion, spirituality, mass, music, art. You know, I think it was altered states of consciousness which helped humans rise to this kind of cultural level of development, which has all sorts of horrors as well, but I mean, it's got a lot of beauties too. And well, I, I think the use of altered states of consciousness has been in man's evolution all the way through kind of thing. And we lost it in the kind of cogma of prohibition and um, all that restrictions. And I think it will be very, very beautiful for society and helpful to slowly let its effects permeate a bit. And what, what is it doing? It loosens things up. It introduces a richer pattern of connectivity, I think, which obviously happens without it, but it facilitates that, I think. 
And I think one can see, looking back at history, the cultures who had a kind of um, state of society where altered states were a part of the culture. I mean, like ancient classical world had Eleusis, which was taking a psychedelic substance at the very core of its um, intellectual and spiritual life kind of thing. And I think most of great civilizations did. And so it's not something new, it's something very old. And all we're doing is retrieving old techniques and slightly adjusting them for our kind of whatever modern culture yeah yeah i i i, I did read about a particular study that looked at the use of i can't remember i think it was psilocybin uh for therapy at you know end of life stage and and having those who were um you know very nearing the the, the end of their life um sort of prepare and and they were all struggling with um uh What's yeah. what's going to happen, and that they are they, they are dying, and after uh, having psilocybin assisted therapy, um, they were able to reconcile that and accept, and um, in, in, in there, there was you know dramatic sort of mood improvements, and and um, and it wasn't like a depressed resignation; it was a liberating experience of saying, um, "I'm actually ready and and uh, comfortable." Yeah. To die, I'm 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 okay with dying rather than I'm fighting right. death. I can't bear, it. I, and and it made it so much nicer for the family and and the memories yes. and the carers and the people. I remember one of the uh, women who was an atheist um, when she was asked what was he like, she said it was like being hugged by God, which is such a kind of lovely expression <laughs> coming from an atheist. But, you know, they were beautiful, moving, um, and I'd love to be able to, I keep thinking about, I'd love to open a clinic and planning to have the lady doctor in Jamaica, and we are planning to, uh, to do it, to, um, where people can go and have that experience in a beautiful setting, and that should be all over the place, you know, and you know, for the different indications, because these are very non-specific compounds. What they do is change your inner setting of consciousness. So it doesn't really matter what you are, if you're a farmer or an intellectual or a musician, whatever it is, it slightly tunes it up. Because, in my opinion, what's happening is the increase of blood in the brain capillaries, which I think comes with the constriction of vein, puts more blood in the brain with less cerebral spinal fluids. It slightly changes the balance ratio of the two fluid bodies. That's a hypothesis that hasn't been shown. Um, so that there are billions more brain cells potentially having glucose and oxygen to combust and make energy and you know have excitement like in that picture. Yes. So you've got immensely more activity. And so that kind of makes it richer, the colors, uh, uh, you know, the memories are light, the emotions are light. There's more light kind of lighting up the experience. And that I think is, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, animals like people when they're 
on higher levels of consciousness very much if you're very in tune with them. Well, it's interesting when, when I relate that to what we do with many antipsychotics these days and, and, and whether, whether it be any, any sort of uh, psychiatric medication, if I just pick an SSRI, uh, the idea is if someone is depressed, we give them a drug to shift their mood somewhat. Um, and with the aid of shifting a mood by uh, adding a drug, a therapist is more able to speak with the with the person and the person is able to internalize more or take more perspective to understand yeah. more of what the psychologist is putting down on the table. Similarly, I'm, I'm hearing that is also uh, uh, what psilocybin-assisted therapy might look like. Having said that, there's a greater potency of um, openness of you know the the yeah. ego being um, diminished yeah. with the use of psilocybin versus you know a a uh, slight improvement in um, you know, potential mood uh, with with with, with uh, antipsychotic yeah. as an anti um, sorry psychiatric drug like an SSR. Yeah. yeah, no, they're working in completely different ways. Uh, SSRI is like a plaster; it, it's like the kind of suppresses the bad but it also slightly suppresses the good and so the whole thing is like a little bit like limbo or something in uh, christian description which isn't good really it's not what you choose no one would really choose that if they're very bad way and very depressed maybe it's helpful to be suppressed as the only way to keep it all in control but the difference of a psychedelic is that it expands you, it fills you fuller, in a sense. And if it's, um, you know, it's in a safe setting so that people feel safe, um, a kind of breakthrough could happen. Uh, you know, it's like a, a little miracle, a little bit of change for the better. Suddenly, I mean, I gave up. And funny enough, this is the basis of the Johns Hopkins study. He said, I used to smoke as a 13-year-old because I was very, very tall and I thought I wanted to stop smoking. And so I took out nicotine smoking. And, and then I had this lovely boyfriend, Bart, who taught me the science. And soon after we met, he made a remark saying how, how nasty smoking habit was. So I decided to give it up. I took some LSD, decided to give it up, and never smoked again. And so I could see, with the help of a psychedelic, kind of lifting you into a slightly different sphere, and then a decision. You could change your behavior, kind of thing. And the difference between a, um, SSRI, which leaves all other drugs, which leave you slightly down, we find after a person's taken a psychedelic, there's a kind of afterglow. It, one improves the mood. And then in the days after, and even weeks after, they can report feeling um, happier, um, more um, mindful, more optimistic, you know, a whole lot of positive um, characteristics, which has come from the kind of 
resetting of the neural connections into a kind of more positive way. And that's rather beautiful, isn't it? Mm. And then, I don't know if you know that research we did, and other people have done, which shows that at the core is a mystical experience very often. The people who experience um, things which can roughly be called a mystical experience, because that's what all the um, different kind of figures who had mystical experience and written about them, and Sufism, Buddhism, Christianity, a kind of oceanic, oceanic is a rather nice image of, um, I don't know if you can see this at all. Maybe you can see the picture. Um, this is saying um, these people, it's an average, um, all had thing, uh, characteristics, blissful, insightfulness, disembodiment, complex images, spiritual experience, unity, all of those sort of experiences. And they were the ones on the whole who overcame the depression the most satisfactorily. And so those, those experiences, those elements uh, increased with the, yes. okay, yeah. And, and that's yeah. where maybe some of that profound change comes from. Yes, it, it, it seems to. And that's, so the kind of afterglow is, is on the whole, not always obviously, but usually a kind of positive gain for the person. And I don't think that can be said of a lot of other drugs, you know, pharmaceutical drugs. A lot of them have, a, I mean, obviously some of them are wonderful painkillers and things. But Can you talk a little bit about some of the specifics of uh, some of the research that's been done in terms of the methods, what some of the findings have, have been? Because I know... Uh, there's so much coming out now, you know, even with, you know, I mean, a classic one is, you know, for, for people with post-traumatic stress, um, you know, yeah. life, yeah. Um, addiction, yeah. uh, there's, there's lots of applications. Are there any that sort of come to mind um, that, that kind of are um, uh, interesting in, in, in your mind that kind of show this is right. where the evidence is because it, you know, yeah. there's, there's always a question of, you know, but where's the evidence? You know, we all understand this mystical stuff, but what does that actually mean? How do we know it works? And, you know, yeah. the yeah. well, is there. Can I mean, you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, we did a study. When I say we, it's um, the Beckley um, Imperial Psychedelic Research Group, which I set up with Dave Nutt and then Robin K. Hart Harris came our principal investigator. And we did. Uh, the first really kind of proper brain imaging study with psilocybin, which showed a reduction of blood to the default mode network. And that's the kind of ego system, what used to be Freud or previously we called the ego. So that got less blood. And it was already known that, that those centers were particularly um, excessive in their activity with depressed or people with psychological disorders. So the fact that it reduced the activity could help, we thought, help treat depression. And so if that's an action which the psychedelics do, psilocybin, we did a study with treatment-resistant patients who had been on average chronically depressed for 18 years, say, and gave them um, a treatment with 
um, psilocybin-assisted therapy. And that included, you know, so well, preparation and then the dose. In this case, it was two relatively small doses. The first dose was just to see the person felt safe and could handle it. And the second was slightly bigger, but not, not a big dose. It was kind of that. Anyway, middle size. And um, so that's the picture that this came from. The, and what we found is that the people who had related on the whole these characteristics, which rather fit the mystical type experience, which means a kind of loss of identity and a feeling of oneness with the whole and feeling of bliss, kind of exalted rather. Not necessarily that was, but that seemed to go with people overcoming their disability the most. And so that kind of opened up what deep possibilities there are with psilocybin. But so did the study with uh, addiction. And in the 60s, there have been a lot of studies with addiction, um, alcohol addiction, um, all sorts of addiction. We should be doing one with opiate addiction. I planned one, but it never came about, but I hope it does. But um, then the other, that one with the death, which is a wonderful study, which, um, you know, people dying, which was done um, Johns Hopkins and NYU and in Los Angeles. And that would be a study which we really should get regulated. Funny enough, it's not an indication. Dying is not an indication, so, which is rather complicated. But if you want to bring it to a regulated medicine, which I wanted to do with that compound, with that indication, you can't actually do it. So um, you can't find the funding to carry out very expensive phase three because it's not at the moment an indication, but hopefully that will change. But I think, but then there's so many other areas that psychedelics can open up and be potential medicines. I mean, an area I'm very interested in at the moment is using it at much lower doses, micro doses, for um, the treatment of uh, neurodegenerative disorders. And um, we and other people are beginning to look at these things, you know, how it can affect the protein which affects the creation of plaque behind Alzheimer's or how it can affect the dopamine and help quite possibly, seemingly, with Parkinson. You know, there are all sorts of different um, new physio physical inclinations which are only just beginning to research and then there's the thing are there any positive signs with those in 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 terms well, of they can assist uh, well in a you know in a um yeah in a beginning way and i'm i'm doing a series of studies at the moment with mini brains you know brains which are made out of human stem cells so they act like brains and you can see how they how these compounds work in the cell and then in the, in, in the system. And, you know, I, I think there's a, well, I think there's so much work to do which can help, um, help humanity in different ways. And then there's the uh, having it in order to just kind of see yourself better and, and uh, you know, and in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with having, 
uh, kind of see the joys and fun of life. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways. I mean, it's been really put down, people using uh, psychedelics for uh, raves and dancing and having fun. But I mean, that's another very important area of life. So I think it's very multidimensional in its um, mm. possible attributes for humanity, but mainly for treat treating. Obviously, that's the kind of most desperately needed area because, as you know, well, no, I mean, suicide has never been higher. And, um, yeah, I just see the application of, you know, particularly when we start seeing, when I re reference back to, that treatment resistance um, population, you know, we yeah. do all sorts of things in, in, in psychology and psychiatry, um, or if I can probably speak more on psychiatry, medicine, yeah. when someone is treatment resistant. And, and we're happy to go all the way to, you know, even things like, you know, ECT, which yeah, um, I'm certainly not an expert by any means, but it, but it, it's um, uh, it, it certainly still falls in the realm of, we do it, we see there's some affect and some um, uh, positive outcomes, but we still have no idea whatsoever why. And in some sense, this is why, you know, LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, DMT, uh, MDMA, uh, potentially all fall in that same category where we've got scientific evidence to say this stuff has been demonstrated to, to work. And it's not a minor thing. I, my understanding is there could be some real, genuine, profound you know, shifts that are yeah. remarkable. A uh, shift that we're not getting. Why exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just because we don't know why exactly doesn't yeah. mean we should dismiss it. Or just because we're scared yeah. of it doesn't mean we yeah. should dismiss it. We should exactly. put science yeah. forward and say, yeah. well, if we're willing to do ECT because there's scientific methodology, Let's apply that with the psychedelics as well. I mean, this is crazy. I don't even know why it's a, a, a yeah. topic or a problem. You know, yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it's really just because it's taboo, and a taboo is a very, very strange thing, and it gets set. I mean, that's what um, post-traumatic stress disorder is, isn't it? It's something that's got blocked in the brain and becomes solid. It becomes a kind of barrier. And that's, in a way, what happens with the taboo. Instead of thinking kind of logically everything about the thing, the person gets into a kind of, whatever you, kind of a terrible constriction in the brain and blindness comes. And it's a tragedy. And, I mean, we've had the unhappiness which we generated through, say, the war on drugs. No good has come out of it. An infinite pain and suffering and illness and wards, you know, it's so many bad characteristics. And if it only we just in the 50s and 60s been allowed to continue the research as it was going, we would have had um, psychedelic assisted therapy, whatever, 30 years ago fully in, which would have been a great help to society, I think. Um, but still, Better yeah. than I, I, I just see it so fascinating because uh, having recently sort of fallen upon this, uh, so to speak, I've got this great interest. And at the same yeah. time, I've never used, you know, any of the psychedelics. And I, even thinking about using it or, or trying it, it just scares me. You know? and yeah. 
I know that there's a, a thought prison inside me saying, you know, you can't do that. What happens if it changes you or, you know, what might happen? The fear of the unknown and, and, and the yeah. more we don't know it, uh, the more yeah. scary, taboo, fearful we can be. Uh, yes. How yes. do we go out? Is, is, it science, is science the key that if, if we can get science? I know that you've been yes. involved in particular with um, uh, con- contributing to global drug policy. You know, is, is this where we need to uh, I think, push I think for as well to get leaders to understand? Absolutely. I think... I think in the early 70s, I realised that the only way through this ridiculous taboo was with the very best science, because science is the modern religion. And so if you show scientifically it's like this, then people are more likely to have to accept it. And I think that's true. I think that the science to show what's happening with these things has been the underlying change for the policy and then the policy allows more science and it's a positive circle you get into, as opposed to a negative circle, which is blocking the research as it was before and is still to a large degree. But, um, and it's just a question of overcoming the taboo because a lot of it's plain common sense, you know, and it seems humans have always done altered their consciousness to kind of, improve the mental state so it's nothing new and um, I met someone the other day who was telling me well interestingly that the new habit of lying the blindfold on music for the therapeutic session which isn't obviously what everyone does but it's quite a common form of procedure Mm. um, came from actually the um, native Indians who blindfolded themselves and had lovely music. And so um, a group of scientists who were living in the north of Canada went and joined the Indians and learned that. Um, so that, that's rather interesting, the kind of going traditionally back. Um, yeah, one of the things that, that really um, jumps out at me um, and look, I don't know how, how valid this 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 is because I haven't read the research. But uh, listening to Jordan Peterson talk about a study relating to uh, looking at the openness trait of uh, you know the, the the big five personalities, and he was talking about there being uh, uh, up to a one standard deviation shift which is just mind-blowingly enormous. Um, and especially when you yeah. think about openness in therapeutic yeah. context, you know, that, that's what we need in our clients and uh, an openness trait, that there was yeah. a one standard deviation shift uh, following one dose of ayahuasca. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that's valid, but that to me yeah. I, I sounds, say sounds mind-blowing. I mean, what the measurements are is kind of, Immaterial, there is the shift. It, it is able of producing a big shift. And a lot of people have said to me, it was the most changing experience in my life. And a lot of those people, funny enough, then say, but I've never had it again. So as if, you know, the one experience is so good, they don't want to have another one. But um, on the other hand, I, 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 and I know exactly what you mean by the fear. 
And I feel the way um, through the fear is with very gentle steps. And that's what I think is the very great value of um, the, the potential habit of microdosing becoming much more common language. Because with a microdose, which is whatever, one-tenth of quite a small, normal trip, so it's, it's, it's quite a low change. Um, a person can perceive the sort of changes that happen and feel a little uplift in mood and a little bit more loose conversation possibly or getting into the flow of something you were playing the piano, doing a game or, you know, even intellectually you find yourself sharp and, and enjoying things at a deeper level. And so I think that's a very kind of easy oiling your way into the altered states, if you see what I mean. And then you can see if it suits you, it doesn't suit everyone. Some people say, you know, I'm perfectly high and happy without it. So um, that's good. It's even, <laughs> even interesting. I'm, I'm sort of reflecting as you and I are talking and, and, and kind of uh, – Part of me is worried about, you know, am I even allowed to talk about this as a psychologist? Yeah. You know, well, what does this yeah. mean to me, to me as a professional? And, you know, will the yeah. registration board question me? Am I allowed to even talk about, you know, uh, how might someone even take drugs safely? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Uh, because it's, it's, it's kind of got this fear yeah. about well, what are you allowed, what are you not allowed? To do, and it can ruin people's careers, can't it? I mean, yeah, if you're yeah. a teacher or a doctor or a, you know, professional lawyer or whatever, um, and you're caught with joint or something, it can ruin your career, whatever, in all sorts of different ways, can't it? And that's just a mistake. It's it's uh, an unnecessary suffering because of um and what is your program called i thought it was very appropriate better thinking better thinking that's right yeah yeah well that's what i think these compounds the change they make in the way the brain works can not to say does but can lead to better thinking because they're more kind of um again back to this old picture they're more different new things being put together and maybe that's one of them is a better way and so suddenly you think click oh that's yeah can you talk can you talk about when it's unsafe uh, i mean obviously we we've, we've talked very much clinically about if it's set up there's a safe setting you know there are people who are going to assist and and, and guide or at a microdose level where someone is trying to um you know specifically um, you know, maybe work on something. When, when can it be unsafe? Because obviously there's been many abuses of all drugs. You know, I mean, if we look mm -hmm. at alcohol, yeah. it, you know, causes the most, you know, harm yeah. of, of, of pretty well all the drugs because um, it just does, probably for many, many reasons. When yeah. can it be unsafe? You know, is it, is, it, is it when someone's inexperienced? Is it using too yeah, much? Absolutely. Facilitate? I mean, actually, tobacco is the one which kills the most people, isn't it? Tobacco is, I think, 5 million globally and alcohol 3 million globally um, deaths. And LSD is almost zero. There are hardly, I don't think there are any, I've never heard of a recorded death 
through overdose of LSD, which is pretty amazing actually, um, because it's non-toxic, so the bigger dose doesn't kill, kind of thing. But it can be, it, there are certain indications where it can be dangerous, which is obviously maybe, I don't know enough about this, but if it can increase the heartbeat taking a compound, and so if the person, possibly, I don't know how many people die of that actually, or any, but another one is psychological, um, on the cusp, psychological trauma. Obviously, again, that could be dangerous, particularly very vitally in an um, unprotected environment. Um, and so as it's changing and um, putting stress on the system, obviously if a person is very near the edge of the system, it's not a good idea unless it's been in a completely, whatever, knowledgeable, controlled way. Um, so, yeah, I think those are very much indications. Obviously, also, it's not good to uh, drive a car or run across roads, you know, go be careless by cliffs, you know, all the obvious things. Of sure. Potential They're the things that often happen if it's being abused, you know, like, you know, if it's used as a party drug uh, and there's high quantities, inexperience, no different to yeah. someone getting incredibly yeah. intoxicated and running across the road um, yeah. at the but it's not high many, level. Yeah. But okay. I think there are many, and this is really due to prohibition. They're, they're terrible stories of, you know, young girls, not necessarily young girls, but dying of MDMA overdose or not pure substance or bad drugs or too much drugs or, you know, if it was regulated mm. and people could get whatever you know advice on what what is a dangerous drug or how you know you obviously people should be able to get doses precise doses and then obviously young children are not allowed if it's regulated just much better much less um well, you know, some, information control yeah, um, it would be just many less deaths and suffering. Great so things I'm that uh, the, the city where I live in, in the ACT, there's some great things that have been trialled as pilot programs uh, around yeah. even testing drugs, uh, all for for young people and, and saying, do you know yeah. that what you're taking is, you know, is it actually what you thought you purchased or is it, you know, a whole yeah. lot of that could potentially be very harmful. You know, there's a harm minimization sort of process of saying, be yeah. aware of what you're taking so that you have agency, you know, and, and, yeah. and if there was a and I, was regulation, there would be clarity. Yeah. Someone in Germany who's making testing kits um, so people can test whatever drug it is, the, the strength of it. And you know, that wouldn't be allowed, probably. I, mean, I don't think it, in some countries. But it's actually being um, um, taken up by the German government, which is a sensible thing. And because obviously it's better that people know the tragedies of people just taking the wrong amount and um, dying because of them. And that doesn't happen with the psychedelic, I should say, because... 
they, they aren't in the same sense toxic. I mean, you obviously know that. You, you can take much more. You might have too much of a psychological effect for comfort, but it doesn't physiologically damage you, like taking too much whatever, heroin or vitamin or alcohol. Um, from from your experience, and obviously this is a field that you're you know you've devoted your life to, and 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 you know uh, you've spent uh, much of your time not only studying but I'm sure also reading the studies of, of many of your peers. Is the science out? You know, are we there yet? And this is purely a policy issue, or is there more science to do uh, to go out and? Yeah. I would say we're just at the foothills of the science we can do. But there's enough science out there to show policymakers this is more effective at treating illness than what we've got going, which is SSRIs, i.e. mood controllers, suppressants, and talking therapy. That's the kind of alternative, or maybe electric shock treatment, but... You know, what we've got is not good, and we haven't had anything new for 30 years since SSRIs were created. And they have bad side effects. 30% of people at least don't, aren't, and nothing good happens. They're, they're a clumsy drug, and you have to take them every day. You know, they're maybe what the pharmaceutical world loves, but it's a kind of, you know, life sentence. But it's much better to have one or two, three, you know, experiences stepped out which change you at a much lower level. So it's healing you lower down and higher up. Um, You know, I think that's much better. And I think slowly as it kind of seeps through our culture that there is this alternative approach to mental illness. I mean, obviously there are mental illnesses which it won't touch, sadly. But I think there are an awful lot which it will touch. And then there are degenerative ones which hopefully it will help at least maybe stop getting worse or, you know, help modulate or... I I think we've got a long way to go still. And then just how lovely to use at a more kind of social level for couples therapy. You know, in, in, in the 50s and 60s, people realized it was wonderful for couples therapy. People tend to be a bit more open, a bit more see the other person's point of view a little bit more, you know, see the joke a bit more. Um, it's, it's very good for couples. Has and there been any research uh, with couples? What? Has there yeah, been any research with couples? Yeah. yeah, I think they did some. I don't actually spend much time studying other people's research, but I, I know, I mean, I've done most of my research, kind of work out what research I think is worthwhile. I do it myself and then set up a study to test it. But, you know, I think it's very good if, if, if you're kind of in some form of emotional or intellectual conflict. I think slightly changing the attitude makes it good. You know, it's a benefit. I mean, I used to be a very keen Go player and we played thousands of games of Go and knew each other's games. And I found on a controllable level of LSD, I played better games. 
I won more games. I could see the patterns better. And that was quite a good lesson to me that it, um, it can enhance cognitive function in the sense, I mean, a lot of thinking is pattern recognition. And that's what, anyway, I, I think it has, and musicians find they can get into it's it. It's fascinating because when I'm doing therapy, so much of what's going on, at least in my mind, is, is, is pattern recognition. I'm right. identifying right. patterns in, in, in uh, my clients uh, and, and trying to highlight them or at least uh, come to see different perspectives than their, you know, one pattern or, or you know, their, their, their limited, vari- limited in variation thoughts. You know, it, yeah. it, it seems to be fused yeah. in one area and it, it's seen the pattern across uh, not just in one area, not just in one topic, but a pattern across their life. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. No, it's very fascinating. And I think that in a funny sort of way, at every level, psychedelics are increasing connectivity, basically. At the neural level, we've done research, which have got wonderful collaborators in Brazil, I work looking at the cell and, and the mini brain and things. And it shows that brain cells soaked in um, LSD will grow more axons and dendrites. And, um, you know, they're more active. And so the networks grow quicker. The connectivity grows quicker. And similarly, different parts of the brain connect with each other more. Again, shown these endlessly illustrative two images. We both show at different levels the increased connectivity. And then at the social level, people can communicate maybe a little bit more easily. Not necessarily, but maybe. And, you know, so it goes on and up and out. The connectivity, you feel more connected to whatever, to stars or, you know. Um, is that what's exciting about when someone has, I dare say the, the, the word to use, because it just seems to be so commonly said, you know, the mystical experience that in some sense it therefore means it becomes more of a longitudinal shift, that there's a, there's a change, yeah. that something occurs where a reference point is, is moved. For example, in, in, in the study of someone who's nearing death, there is a monumental shift of saying, I accept my, yes. my, 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 um, my destiny uh, rather than I'm still battling and wrestling and in anguish, you know, that I'm going through anguish yeah. versus I'm accepting. That, 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 that's transformative. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I, I think that kind of shift to a slightly wiser um, insightful state i think in a way um that's what the change is um, one can one can explain it in sorry about that you can explain it in different um ways whether electrical or physiological but it's more kind of connect, connected more floating I, I, I think, sorry, it's an advantage to um, play the different states of consciousness in a way. You know, there, there are advantages. 
It's a real problem with language here. Well, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed Michael Pollan's uh, book is, is I think he gave it a language. He gave it a narrative and a story, and I think it was very balanced. You know, it didn't feel to me like it was pro, um, nor was it against. I thought he did a good job, but it was a, it's an issue of language. It's really hard for me to feel comfortable with something that still appears to be so, so mystical and so far away. Uh, you know, we're like, so what is it? What's the agent that makes the change? You know, the scientific brain still wants, you know, very clear answers. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I think he, he uses words very well. He's a very good journalist who knows how to um, express things well. Hmm. And where to next for you? Uh, what, what, what research are you looking at at the moment? Where, where do you see there being an importance to put, you know, research monies or maybe new students that are looking at, at doing their own, you know, doctorates and the like? Where, where do you see is the... Yeah. I, I've got a, a very wide spectrum of interest. I mean, my old favourite has always been LSD. So I'm doing a lot of research in LSD in different areas. Um, because it's very, um, and we've done research which shows that um, a dose testing study, which shows that a certain dose, actually 20 micrograms, um, which is small, uh, but uh, quite a large microdose, you said, but not really large. But um, One saw an improvement in cognition, vitality, and mood, and pain management. And, you know, that's a pretty amazing combination for, say, palliative care. Someone who do a study in palliative care and start to introduce it in palliative care. So poor old people put in front of the telly for 20 years on repressants or, you know, instead of that, they'd be a little bit more sharp. And then there's others in cognition, how, how it stimulates cognition and possibly one can use that at both ends of the scale to increase creativity but also possibly to help um, when the brain starts to get uh, be deficit and not learn, not be so interested in new things like we did an experiment with rats showing that young rats love new toys and go exploring them and as they get older, they become adults, they get bored and don't explore new toys, they go to the old ones. Whereas after LSD, they go to the new toys. And maybe with old people, one can um, give them a microdose and then with um, assisted learning, it could stimulate learning or, you know, intellectual. Or improve socialisation. I mean, there's yeah. so much loneliness as well that yeah. if you could just do a microdose or yeah. facilitates, stimulates, you know, connecting with yeah. others. So that, that New and toys, right? about the different researches I'm wanting to do with LSE or am doing. Then there's, um, say, Ibogaine, which is an amazing bark of a tree from Africa. And it has an amazing effect on stopping people's cravings in alcohol or opiates. But also in an amazing way, I'm at the moment doing some research with microdosing with, um, I'm just setting it up, very fascinating, excited with Parkinson 
Um, you know, there's all sorts of different, uh, it has, can, you know, have a wonderful effect. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of different areas of, and then we're doing um, the first research with 5-MeO-DMT, which is um, amazing compound, which is in some plants, but it's also in the toad venom of a certain toad in the Mexican desert. And it secretes this solution. And um, when it's put in fearfuls in, or people milk it, get it out, and then inhale it as a stuff, as the original way of uh, in traditional life, they used to inhale it as stuff. And then it has an amazing effect of getting to the kind of mystical level in minutes. And so we're doing research on that, in both of the micro and the mini brains, and then, you know, and then in human trials. It's very exciting, all it. Wow. I can go on. There's an awful lot of areas of excitement. Then we're opening up a clinic in um, Barcelona, which will give psychedelic assisted therapy to people who need it. And then we'll also do research. And then we'll also teach therapists and then have a kind of um, a well-being um, a, a section, um, retreat, so, you know. So, and there's a mass of things one can do. And there are many, many more that I'm doing, actually, more things to do than hours in the day. And then a whole lot of other people are doing other exciting things. So, so it's an exciting period. Um, I can see how it just lends itself to so many different areas. Like as you're speaking about each one of those, I feel myself getting excited saying, oh, I could do that. And then, you know, look at the next one, oh, I could do that. They're all so fascinating and and, 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 uh, interesting. key to the whole thing. The therapist to um, facilitate people coming and experiencing the change kind of thing. So I think it's a wonderful thing you're doing. Amanda, we could talk for hours and hours, but I, I thank you so much for, for what you've offered here today and made your time available. I know it's very late in the evening for, for you. Um, how can people find out more? Obviously, this might be the start of a conversation for many. Where can people go to to find out more? Um, well, um, I, when I, at a certain point, I realized I'd be much more effective for what I'm doing if I became a foundation. And so I became a charitable foundation, which is an easy thing to do, called the Beckley Foundation. Beckley is the name of my house. I just thought it sounded like Berkeley or Bettington or it sounded rather official. <laughs> and, and so it's BeckleyFoundation.org. And um, I realize that one has to do, I, I love the science, but I realize one also has to do the policy because one has to change the social setup because it was blocking research and sending people to prison and causing AIDS and horrible things because it didn't allow heroin users to have needles, clean needles, etc. You know, it was a disaster. So one had to do the So that's what I did. As a, you know, I thought, what does a single woman with no money, let's call it 16, how do you change world drug policy and 
introduce psychedelics into a culture, you become a foundation. <laughs> One way to do it. So anyway, you can look it up from the foundation. What will you do? Amanda, thank you very much. And uh, I wish you all the best because I'm looking forward to one day, hopefully being one of those practices, being one of those clinics in Australia uh, that can offer uh, alternatives to what we're already doing. Um, not even alternatives, my apologies, complementaries that we can add uh, yeah. more, more breadth. And that would be an exciting thing to do. So looking forward to hearing more about your research. and. And you're doing wonderful work in Australia. I, I know some wonderful what the research going on there. So <laughs> lovely, well, lovely talking with you. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, Amanda Felding, thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.